Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're listening to Hellenistic Christendom, Philosophy for Understanding Theology. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Hellenistic Christendom, where today I'm actually finally going to tour over into apologetics because I've been asked to address this subject in a little more detail, and I want to do so by by still talking about Soren Kierkegaard, my primary reason for doing that is because I do think that Kierkegaard has theological and philosophical resources that can be effective for one's apologetic uh, and evangelical method. However, I think in my giving this advice and giving my thoughts about Kierkegaard, the point is not to have one's apologetic method end in Kierkegaard, let alone begin. These are just really insights or points of thought, of reference, of advice, and orienting the individual, be it the Christian individual, towards cultivating a biblical or spiritual apologetic. And so I have these thoughts written down that I organized initially through an essay or a blog post, I guess, um, that I posted on my WordPress. So it's on Hellenistic Christendom on WordPress where I write, which is where my blog initially began. So I'm trying to kind of keep that moving um, uh, in, in its own way. Because you know, I've been all over the place with this podcast, and I have my other podcast, Unadulterated Theology, which is about porn, and then I have, um, you know, my WordPress, which is my blog, which is philosophy of religion topics more generally, and then, of course, I have Instagram, Facebook, so I have a lot of things I'm trying to keep up with, so I'm trying to get back into writing to kind of draw more attention uh, towards this. So, otherwise, this episode is going to be concerned with a Kierkegaardian apologetic, more concerned with communication and the nature of the character of the communicator, or that is the Christian apologist. But first, I'd like to dispel any presumptions early on about a Kierkegaardian apologetic resembling something of an existentialist project. After all, perhaps the present listener is not unfamiliar with a commonly propagated tip of the hat among philosophy textbooks that Soren Kierkegaard was an existentialist, indeed oftentimes quipped as the father of existentialism. Now, I offered a lecture uh, some months ago, back in August, on my YouTube. It's also published here on this same podcast, just a few episodes down, I think in season one. I think. You'll find it. Just scroll down. <laughs> but um, I offered a lecture entitled, Is Soren Kierkegaard an Existentialist? To which I offer a resounding no. But I'll only repeat here the conclusion of that lecture with an emphatic insistence that cultivating a sort of apologetic method or evangelical approach that seeks the help of Soren Kierkegaard ought not to be considered as existentialistic or as the student themselves being an existentialist. Though there was a definite post-World War II cultural and philosophical movement that came to be known as existentialism throughout the 1960s, the application of that term to certain philosophers and theologians has often been met with mixed feelings from the intellectuals themselves. For example, Carl Jaspers and Gabriel Marcel were considered early proponents of or I guess, creators, if you will, of the existentialist movement within the post-World War II uh, period. But both of those individuals came to reject uh, being associated with that title. Whereas, for example, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir came to uh, embrace the term existentialist. So it differs among who you ask. But aside from this, the present listener who has spent any and enough time alone with Kierkegaard will understand Walter Lorry and Paul Ricoeur's comments that if Kierkegaard were familiarized with this concept today, he would vehemently reject any association with the philosophical movement. As Kierkegaard wrote, after all, in his journals, just one thing more, he says, 
I hardly need say that by wanting to win people, it is not my intention to form a party, to create secular, sensate togetherness. No, my wish is only to win people, if possible all people, each individual, for Christianity. So my reason then for reiterating these comments now is to remove any preconceived shackles that might hinder the present reader from taking a holistic, serious approach to Kierkegaard's authorship, something that is not an easy task in itself to do. Now, perhaps one of my favorite things, just to kind of move into, the, I guess, the first point um, about reading, perhaps one of my favorite things about Kierkegaard's authorship is our role within it as reader. More specifically, throughout the authorship, we are variously referred to as my dear reader and other endearing names. For example, one of my favorites actually comes from the journals, where he calls us by a Greek word um, that he obtained from his readings of the satirist or the historian uh, Lucian, uh, L-U-C-I-A-N, if I'm saying that right, um, where he called us paranecroi, P-A-R-A-N-E-K-R-O-I, which is a word that roughly translates to one who is as dead as I am. I've always loved that, so I thought about stealing it, but Anyway, besides that, there is a certain awareness, after all, that the uh, uh, author shares with us, oftentimes breaking the fourth wall in order to address us directly. One of my favorite examples of this sort of procedure often occurs throughout his journals, where the reader, we are sort of possessed within the thought that we're reading the interior thoughts of one who has ceased living, and yet... Kierkegaard sort of suddenly and sort of randomly breaks open before us. I'll, get, I'll read you one example here. All existence makes me anxious. From the smallest fly to the mysteries of the incarnation, the whole thing is inexplicable to me. I myself, most of all. To me, all existence is infected. I myself, most of all. My distress is enormous, boundless. No one knows it except God in heaven. And he will not console me. No one can console me except God in heaven, and he will not take compassion on me. Young man, you who will stand at the beginning, or excuse me, young man, you who still stand at the beginning of your goal, if you have gone astray, turn back to God, and from his upbringing you will take along with you a youthfulness strengthened for manly tasks. So Kierkegaard just kind of goes on in this sort of melancholic, depressive sort of meditation about how all existence makes me anxious. And then he just sort of interrupts and says, young man, you who still stand at the beginning of your goal. It's amazing. When I first read that, I nearly stopped in my tracks. And he does this several other times. But he goes on to say, and I, I kind of want to keep reading the passage because it's pretty great. He, Speaking of the young man, you will never know the suffering of one who, having wasted the courage and energy of youth and insubordination against him, against God, must begin to retreat, weak and exhausted, through devastated countries and ravaged provinces, everywhere surrounded by the abomination of desolation, by burned-out cities and the smoking ruins of frustrated hopes, by trampled prosperity and toppled success, a retreat as slow as a bad year, as long as eternity, monotonously broken by the daily repeated sigh. These days I find no satisfaction in them. Of course, coming from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the issue of importance overall is, of course, that the individual is constantly being addressed. Kierkegaard very much has an interest of winning men for Christianity, 
much like the early fathers of the church were invested in the changing of minds among their contemporaries, pagans and fellow Christians included. However, the sort of procedure, or dialectic to use a specific phrase, that Kierkegaard utilizes in order to address the individual is something altogether different than being polemic or argumentative or didactic or instructive. However, Kierkegaard's goal is to be experimental, not instructive. He says this over and again and again in his journals that scholars and professors will want to read him in an instructive way, not an experimental way. So then, let's consider first some comments from Kierkegaard's autobiographical account of his role as author in a work entitled The Point of View for My Work as an Author. It was originally uh, written in 1848 and published posthumously to his death in 1859. So Kierkegaard died in 1855, and this was published sometime thereafter, as well as a few other books of his. Now, in Chapter 1, Section 2, Kierkegaard provides some thoughts on the following advice. That if real success is to attend the effort to bring a man to a definite position, one must first of all take pains to find him where he is and begin there. Now, as popularity and interest in apologetics grows, especially within online apologetics, I'm convinced that this sort of advice is squandering and found waning within most defenders and evangelicals of the Christian worldview. Cultivating a Kierkegaardian apologetic primarily resides in understanding this secret among helping others. And if there is anyone, as Kierkegaard says, who has not mastered this, is himself deluded when he proposes to help others. Kierkegaard writes in full, In order to help another effectively, I must understand more than he. Yet first of all, surely I must understand what he understands. If I do not know that, my greater understanding will be of no help to him. If, however, I am disposed to plume myself on my greater understanding, it is because I am vain or proud, so that, at bottom, instead of benefiting him, I want to be admired. But all true effort to help begins with self-humiliation. The helper must first humiliate himself under him he would help, and therewith must understand that to help does not mean to be a sovereign, but to be a servant. That to help does not mean to be ambitious, but to be patient. That to help means to endure for the time being the imputation that one is in the wrong and does not understand what the other understands. In other words, as he succinctly writes in his journals, otherwise, the more superior one person is to another whom he loves, the more he will feel tempted, humanly speaking, to draw the other up to himself. But divinely speaking the more he will feel moved to come down to him. This is the dialectic of love. Now, there are some practical points worth dissecting from this. First, the sphere of apologetics or evangelization that a Christian is called to does not explicitly tacit that they become a professor. Nor is the point meant to be taken away that becoming a professor is an ideal course of action in becoming effective for evangelization. Now, this isn't to discourage professors that are listening. This is only to make a sort of emphatic um, clarification by sort of making this sort of isolated observation in order to kind of get a point across. That is really, of course, to reiterate what our Lord said in Luke 12, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, as Jesus says in verse 48. Now, the point of Kierkegaard's dialectic 
concerns a method of communication which cultivates the art of speaking, the art of communication, based on an understanding of psychology that has an interest in human affairs and a sympathy for the various interests of human beings. Now, when I said that this form of communication cultivates the art of speaking, I'm taking that directly from Kierkegaard's journals, and also where he says that the Christian life needs to cultivate an understanding of psychology that has an interest in human affairs and a sympathy for the various interests of human beings. That also comes from Kierkegaard's journal. So these two things, I think, are very primarily important in the Christian life. And of course, he has a very peculiar and very specialized understanding of psychology than what we would have uh, today, because, of course, Kierkegaard is writing, for the most part, in the 1840s, long before the development of the behavioral sciences of psychoanalysis and so forth. So, this in itself, this whole procedure of cultivating an art of speaking, a sympathy for human affairs and its various interests, this in itself requires a lot of education. Not necessarily intellectually speaking, but through faith. Concerning self-recognition or recognizing that one is a self and admitting one's guilt as a sinner before God, this is the first thing that every man is assigned to do, says Kierkegaard. And he writes that, and every man, if he carefully examines himself, possesses within himself a more complete expression for everything human than the summa summarum of all the knowledge that he gains. Kierkegaard's interest in an effective apologist or evangelist has nothing to do with eloquence, since this sometimes can be a characteristic of evil or of malice. But more so, Kierkegaard is interested with appropriation. It is genuinely upbuilding, Kierkegaard writes, to see the instinctive confidence which simple people appropriate God's word to themselves, how often they go away with a true blessing from a sermon which they are far from understanding. Like birds of the heavens, they neither sow nor reap, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. He wrote that in his journals in 1839. Now, appropriation means that an experience within God's word entails an obedience by the reader towards that which is written, or that which has been spoken. Perhaps one of Kierkegaard's greatest expositions on scripture comes from his deliberations and his later Christian discourses on treating God's word like a mirror, a meditation which was inspired from his readings of the Catholic reformer and theologian Girolamo Savonarola. It's always so hard to say his name, but I've always loved Savonarola. Um, and his, uh, I believe it's his letters, if I'm thinking of uh, the right thinker. Um, but obedience is a central theme within Kierkegaard's authorship that didn't take precedence until his later religious works, but is one which premieres more forcefully within his book on Adler, which was written in the mid to late 1840s, but published again posthumously to his death in 1872. Now, besides that, appropriation and obedience are concepts which are bound up with one another, but are conceptually different. Appropriation entails that one stands in a unique relation with God, with God's word. Primarily, appropriation entails an existential relation to God. Well, what does it mean to relate existentially to God? Now, it's funny that I mentioned that existentialism has nothing to do with Soren Kierkegaard, but insofar as this phrase is properly understood, that, that word is actually kind of important when understanding Kierkegaard's apologetic and the quality of his thought, because I don't think he's an existentialist in the modern sense of the term, um, because if he was, then I think we could apply this more generally to other thinkers that we normally wouldn't, such as Shakespeare, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, even Plato, among others. But um, I don't choose to do that, so anyway. Now, we remember 
speaking on what it means to existentially relate to God, we remember that our blessed Lord remembered our disciples to be wise like serpents and innocent like doves. He says that in Matthew 10, 16. Now, what's interesting about these kinds of statements by Jesus and many others like them is that these directives are always splashed with a sort of religious imagination. Kierkegaard sometimes referred to these sort of statements as Christian seriousness proper, which is a concept that involves a relationship between the intellect and the imagination, but is lacking, he says, this factor or qualification of the will. Now, I've talked about this before um, on my other podcast, Unadulterated Theology, but this concept is somewhat similar to the German theologian um, George Hamann's concept of metaschematisa, which is a Greek word. And mind you, George Hamann is a theologian that Kierkegaard was um, very familiar with and highly fond of. So it's, I think, probably important for anyone very interested uh, or delved into the um, writings of Kierkegaard that they also look at this thinker as well, George Hamann. And I, th- I th- it's German because when you say George, there isn't an E at the end. So I think it's Gerga. Um, so I think I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But if you were to look it up, George Hamann, it, there'd be no E at the end. So I think it's Gerga. Anyway, now meta schematic theology which is a fun thing to kind of talk about, but it entails a kind of application of analogies, metaphors, and or narratives to establish a kind of teaching or a form of communication which substitutes concrete relationships for those applications. So for example, consider the prophet Nathan's rebuke of King David by appealing to the story of the two shepherds in 2 Samuel 12. What's far more profound about the metaschematic application in this passage is Nathan's appropriation of God's word before David in the form of a story. David, after all, being a poet, should know well and be fond of the feelings and attitudes conveyed in the form of narrative. Hence, Nathan, metaschematistically, applied this story to David's situation and was able to produce an effect of remorse and guilt within David. In the same way, the Christian apologist ought to cultivate these similar gifts of metaschematic applications in order to address other individuals, where they are and as they are. And this is actually where the word comes from, metaschematisa, from the original Greek of 1 Corinthians 4.6. Paul writes, I have applied all these things, the word there is metaschematisa, to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, this is the motivation behind Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians 9.22, that to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I'm reminded here of the young man Elihu, uh, his rebuke of Job in um, Job 32, where he so beautifully laid down the grounds of wisdom for all young men to emulate in their styles of communication. So after Job's friend had already spoken, and Job, of course, Elihu comes forth and finally says, I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. He says that in Job 32, verses 7 through 9. That is, apologetic help necessarily includes an element of servitude and humility that is difficult to convey independent of a context 
that involves person-to-person communication. So insofar as we online apologists, you know, I do a lot of my evangelical work behind the computer, if you will. Um, We are not often able to address our audience members individually and directly. The best form of communication outside of this is a combination of direct and indirect communication. So it's one thing to instruct someone ethically and another thing to instruct them religiously. Oftentimes, Christians think that they're doing the same thing when they speak of only one of them, but this isn't quite true. To be a religious instructor is not to be an instructor in ethics. However, the instructor of the religious like the instructor of ethics, must possess the quality of emulating that which they wish to instruct. Yet, the religious instructor differs from the ethics instructor in that the communication in one involves a different form of communication in another. So, for example, Kierkegaard differentiates between communication of knowledge and communication of capability. So, communication has four parts. He says, the object, the communicator, the receiver, and the communication. Kierkegaard essentially thinks that the modern individual has laid too much emphasis on what they are to communicate, rather than with what communication even is. The essential difference between communication of knowledge and knowledge and communication of capability is that the reflection contained within one communication is has an object, namely knowledge, while the other does not have an object, namely capability. So in communication of capability, when the communicator and the receiver are reflected upon equally, here is where we have the general instruction of art between teacher and learner. When the communication involves a reflection upon the receiver only, the communicator disappears, as it were, and this is considered an ethical communication, that is, a maiutic art as Socrates would have understood it. The communicator disappears and is only in service of the receiver to become, if you will. Now, furthermore, this sort of communication is not knowledge per se, but is what Kierkegaard calls an oughtness capability, which Kierkegaard considers more or less as an indirect form of communication. By contrast, once this communication of capability includes an element of knowledge, that is, takes up an object, This is considered the ethical religious, that is, Christian communication. So therefore, the forms of communication are as follows for Kierkegaard. First, all communication of knowledge is direct communication. All communication of capability is more or less indirect communication. Now, first of all, what Kierkegaard has called genuine art communication. So this is the base level of what wants to be communicated um, amidst learning or being instructed in a new, let's say, art. Then above this goes to ethical communication. And this is, Kierkegaard says, unconditionally indirect. It can't be otherwise. This ethical instruction must involve various forms of communication which don't directly... um, absolve the learner of some particular object of knowledge, but is constantly orienting, directing um, the individual, the learner, in various situations through an indirect form of communication. Then we have the highest, which is ethical religious communication, namely Christian. 
And this is a combination of direct, indirect. Now, essentially what is being conveyed within all of this, this sort of schematization of indirect and direct communication, is that there are various kinds of instruction or communication which either involves direct or indirect communication. Now, Christian communication, in the modern sense, has often fallen trap in forgetting to address the truths of Christianity towards receivers in an indirect way. And this is somewhat similar uh, to the procedure of Christ, who never addressed questions in a direct, literal manner, but often spoke indirectly, using seriousness proper that I mentioned earlier, in order to communicate truth about spirituality or spiritual reality. One classical uh, one classic example of this kind of communication involves Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3 regarding his discussion of the Spirit being like the wind and trying to appeal to an instruction for Nicodemus which was indirect. It didn't directly concern the matters of the truths of spiritual reality, but applied to things with which Nicodemus could understand. Which is why Jesus says, um, if I have... If you cannot even understand earthly things, how, how do you expect me to explain to you uh, heavenly things? It's very important that Jesus says that, and I think we should cultivate this in our apologetic method, that um, direct communication is not always the most ideal form of communication when trying to impart a combination of knowledge and capability within our learners. Because I think apologists often lose that the importance of that distinction, because they just think that if only the individual knew otherwise. But there's this element of capability which involves a different form of instruction, a different kind of relationship between teacher and learner. And this requires a lot of instruction, not only just within the teacher and learner, but within one's own life, between themselves and God, about being constituted and constructed in faith and being educated um, by God, by spending time in God's Word. And I'll get into a conclusion here in a moment to sort of summarize what these points are getting at. And I think this post, um, or this... um, lecture for today, I guess if you want to call it that, this episode, um, was only meant to highlight that an effective apologetic attitude involves a spiritually developing quality of character within the Christian. First and foremost, this spiritual development grounds itself with the recognition that one is a self before God. They God does not relate to crowds, if you will. God relates to individuals as spirit, because God is spirit. So that is to say that one starts with the recognition that they are a self before God, guilty and a sinner. And that second, the spiritual edifice of this individual consists in their upbuilding and being perfected by obedience to God's word. And third, the Christian communicator, through humility, meets other individuals where they are and as they are. The Christian communicator has no interest in eloquence, influence, or sophistication. Their only interest is in serving the religious, wherein their servitude to the receiver is not entailed by an exposition or refined knowledge of the arguments for or against God's existence, but by their self-humiliation to reconcile the receiver with God. Now, that essentially concludes this episode regarding a Kierkegaardian apologetic, because that's all the notes that I had regarding the article that I posted on WordPress. But I wanted to provide some quick comments on being a sort of Kierkegaardian apologist and dealing with atheism. Because one thing that's always been strange for me within Kierkegaard's authorship is that, you know, he says that his whole point for being an author and the role of the authorship was to present the problem of what it means to be a Christian. 
And he says this in the concluding unscientific postscript. So he has this interest in winning men for Christianity, of showcasing the problem for what it means to become a Christian, and etc. But we usually when we think of that, of one transitioning into a Christian, I think we tend to view the usual sort of secular transition. That is to say, apologetics usually concerns itself, of course, with arguments about other worldview claims and etc. But there's such a polemic, such a constant reinforcement between atheism being pitted against um, Christianity. And one of the strange things about Kierkegaard's authorship is that he has so little to say about atheism. And of course, there's probably a number of reasons of this, of course, one of which being primarily historical in that the concept of atheism and of secularism that we have today is very much different than it was 150 years ago. But even with that said, there are still some mentions within Kierkegaard's journals of free thinkers. And he says this a couple times in my 1967 Hong translation of Kierkegaard's journals, where if you go to the second, if you happen to for some reason own this rare book. <laughs> if you go to the section, I believe it's on Christianity or on the church. And he has a few sections where he talks about the secular mentality of free thinkers. But what's interesting is, is that when he talks about free thinkers and those that want to be subversive towards religion and political affairs and etc., that he really equates these to the kind of sort of slothful Christians in Christendom. He sort of takes them within the same thing. In fact, he even makes one funny claim where it's, it's very comical that free thinkers want to do away with the clergyman and the priest, and that even though what's ironic is that Christianity would do away with them as well. Christendom has found itself within a kind of complacency, a kind of political establishment that's altogether different from what Christianity as a lived experience is. And so it's interesting that a lot of the complaints that were being hurled towards the church were actually cultivated as, yeah, that's actually quite true, and I would agree with you, but the subversive attitude that free thinkers typically have undermine what the real issue is. And so I think Kierkegaard actually goes further as a Christian by agreeing that we have to do away with this kind of establishment Christianity because, as he says, the church is always becoming. It's always a, a constant development. And, of course, there's a, um, a Christ establishment of the church, but it's important that I think we realize that the church as an establishment is different from the church as becoming because the, the church is always within this mode of historical development. And I don't mean this in a kind of Hegelian sort of, uh, you know, process, if you will, that history is in this constant state. And I don't mean anything like that. I just mean hmm, that the quality of the church, that is to say how Christianity is implanted within ideas or is how Christianity is implanted within individuals as a sort of idea, if you will. I think Kierkegaard got it right, where he constantly refers to Christianity as the idea. That is to say that the beloved, or that the lover seeks the beloved, or you know something to that effect. He says that in my point of view. And that when you come to a realization of that idea, and you are developed and are being built up in the truth of that sort of idea... This looks like something. And so atheism kind of becomes a secondary issue that really isn't of all that much interest to the Christian. Now, I think there is a kind of intellectual seriousness that we do have to owe to atheism because the conversation is so sophisticatedly developed over the last 50 to 100 years with the advent of analytic theology, um, more developments within the philosophy of religion ever since the 1960s and 70s when we're looking at big name guys, um, you know, such as 
Mackie, Graham Oppie, um, Sobel, um, you know, some other names that I'm probably forgetting. But we have to take these sort of challenges seriously. So this isn't to undermine or to push away atheists outright. But I think Christians need to think a little bit more deeply about what motivates atheism. And they can address this more holistically when they're in person-to-person communications. Rather than just being in online forums, in comment sections on Facebook, on YouTube, and going back and forth profitlessly uh, with other individuals about atheism, the resurrection, arguments for God's existence, which are really just a great waste of time, of breath, um, and a, you know, a lot of spiritual uh, fortitude as well. It's, it's just, there's a lot of time and a lot of attention that can be directed elsewhere than in a comment section, than in a YouTube debate and etc. So those are just sort of my opinions on how uh, a, a contemporary sort of modern apologist can orient themselves and why Kierkegaard has, I think, very sound advice for directing Christian individuals and, in in you know, as I say, in a sound direction for uh, an apologetic or an evangelical method. So the goal isn't so much to pick up Kierkegaard, remain in Kierkegaard, see how amazing the things he said about the faith, but to use him as a sort of reference point, a sort of guide that can orient one sort of in faith, that Kierkegaard is a kind of author who really wants to upbuild his readers, and that if this quality really does exist within a person, this, again, this quality of love, then this is what ought to be at the forefront of our apologetic. So, yeah, that's just kind of my episode for today. That's what a Kierkegaardian apologetic looks like. Of course, there's so much more to talk about, but that's just sort of my brief treatment of what's going on um, with Kierkegaard and apologetics and how we can have a better conversation about it. So, thank you so much. God bless you. Please be sure to uh, <laughs> please be sure to check out the page wherever else I have it available on WordPress, YouTube, Instagram. Check out my other podcast on adulterated theology, which has to do with issues of sex, sexuality, sex work, pornography, adult entertainment, and subjects of the like. So, God bless you. Thank you so much for attaining the time and the attention to make it to the end to today's episode. God bless you, and have a wonderful day or night.